Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? What are some things standing in the way of being the best version of you? For a lot of people, life, your past, and sometimes your current situation can cause roadblocks in your life. Mental health is incredibly important, and so many, including myself, can benefit from talking to a professional and working to dismantle those roadblocks. That's why I'm excited to talk to you guys about BetterHelp. BetterHelp knows no two people are the same and will help to assess your personal needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. These incredibly convenient appointments are in a safe and completely private online environment, and you can start chatting with your new therapist in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. You can message with your counselor at any time and get a timely response, plus schedule weekly video or phone sessions, which means no driving to an office, no waiting rooms, and no awkward small talk. Just meaningful sessions with experts who specialize in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, family conflict, LGBTQ matters, grief, and so much more. There is truly someone there for everyone. And BetterHelp is committed to finding your perfect match. Which means if you and your counselor don't mesh for whatever reason, they make it easy and free to seek someone new if needed. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. 
And with financial aid available and access worldwide, they truly make it easy for anyone to seek the help they need. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash morning cup. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Two more murders, 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning. Cup of murder. DNA has made it possible to connect even the most disconnected cases. On January 4th, 2001, a man was killed and his case quickly went cold. That was until a completely unrelated attack gave investigators the DNA possible to connect not just these two cases, but a handful of others. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On the afternoon of January 4th, 2001, a 40-year-old man named Mike Emert, a Seattle area real estate agent, set up a meeting with a prospective client. Telling his wife his name was Stephen, he was in his 50s, walked around with a cane due to a limp, and was relocating from Northern California and looking to do a walkthrough on one of Mike's properties. So they set up a meeting at a local shopping center with plans to go together over to the house situated on a large private lot and set back far away from any of the other houses. When the homeowner, the one trying to sell through Mike, came back home after lunchtime, she noticed that the door was slightly ajar and could hear what sounded like water running from somewhere inside the house. Following the sound, she found a trail of blood. Following the blood, she found Mike's body slumped across her upstairs bathtub, sink and showerhead both running and washing away the blood from his 19 stab wounds. She called the police and almost immediately, they stood scratching their heads at the strangeness of this particular case. From the looks of things, Mike was killed by a person with a large amount of expertise who planned the murder down to the last tiny details. The house was clearly chosen due to its isolated location. The scene was clean, the murder methodical, and Mike, who was nearly six feet tall and strong, seemed like an unlikely victim for someone's first kill. It wasn't long before police began to theorize that the limp this Stephen was suffering from was likely a ruse and that his cane may have even contained the murder weapon. As police searched for any possible evidence and interviews began that would later total in the hundreds, investigators found one tiny speck of silver lining, something they kept a secret from the press and from the public. Traces of DNA found under Mike's fingernails and a tiny speck of blood in Mike's abandoned Cadillac that did not belong to its driver. Unfortunately, when they ran it through the system, nothing turned up. So with the DNA tucked away for safekeeping, shows like Unsolved Mysteries profiled the case and online sleuths tried to piece together all of the strange details in the now completely cold case of Mike Emmert. Now, fast forward a bit to March 26, 2010. That's the day that, at around 10.30 p.m., Dr. Craig McAllister, an orthopedic surgeon, drove up to his Lake Washington home with his 20-year-old son, who was visiting from college, sitting in his passenger seat. 
Because they had just had some mulch delivered to their home earlier that day, the pair parked on the street and walked up the driveway in the dark of the night. Just before reaching the home, a man in a ski mask and dressed in all black slowly rose from behind the mulch pile and, in a very calm voice, told the pair to relax, indicating that he had a gun if they chose not to cooperate. It was in that moment that Craig McAllister, realizing that a run-of-the-mill home burglar would have bolted the second he saw the two men, remembered that his wife and 13-year-old daughter were in the house behind the armed man, a man he had to make sure did not step foot inside of his house. In a split second, the doctor jumped on top of the stranger, tackling him to the ground as his son ran to a neighbor's home to call 911. After getting stunned repeatedly with the masked man's stun gun, a second man ran out of the dark, also clad in black and a ski mask, and started pistol whipping Craig from behind. He held off as long as he could, but finally gave up the fight and collapsed to the ground. That's when the intruders turned around and zeroed in on the McAllister home. They began viciously kicking at the front door as Craig's wife, confused by the sound, came to open the door and was greeted by the faces of two unknown men. She quickly slammed the door shut and deadbolted it before running to call the police. By the time they arrived, both men were gone, but in their wake, and thanks to Craig McAllister who yanked it off, was one of the two ski masks. Inside was DNA that would not only solve the near break-in at the McAllister home, but solve the long, cold Mike Emmert murder. The DNA in the mask was matched to that of a man named John Allen Bradshaw, a 65-year-old convicted felon who had a criminal history, not of home invasion, but of money laundering. And a quick look into his life and his associates led to a name that police were reasonably sure belonged to his accomplice in the Lake Washington incident. A 62-year-old man named Gary Kruger, whose wife had filed a missing persons report for just a week after the invasion. Gary Kruger, a former Seattle police officer. Gary Kruger, like most of the men and women in our stories, had a life that seemed to bear down on him hard. After his brother-in-law convinced him to join the Marines in 1967, and Gary convinced seven of his other close friends to join him as well, the group all arrived in Vietnam as combat infantrymen, and very quickly, Gary became part of a combined action group and was charged with living in some remote villages and doing humanitarian work. He was stationed in Khai San in January of 1968 when the North Vietnamese opened fire on his base injuring 1,600 Marines, killing 250, and starting the bloody Tet Offensive. Gary turned 20 years old on the sixth day of a battle that, in the end, had him witnessing the deaths of many of his friends, as well as privy to the atrocities committed against the Vietnamese by other Americans. His brother-in-law was killed by a landmine and, by the time he returned to U.S. soil in December of 1968, Six of the seven friends he got to join had all been killed. He was honorably discharged a month later and, six months after that, joined the Seattle Police Department. As just a 21-year-old rookie, he found himself assigned to work the anti-Vietnam protest and subsequent riots. Over the next four or so years, Gary seemed on the surface to get his life back on track, something that not every soldier had been able to do married his wife Betty, 
had a daughter, and joined the Army Reserves in addition to his work as an officer. However, not everything was as it seemed. In April of 1970, he used a wrestling hold to restrain a fellow veteran, and as a result, the man lost his life. And though the hospital and police kept the details hidden from the press, the death haunted Gary and added to his already existing trauma related to the war. But to the public, he was a kind, courteous, and professional local officer, recognized for his work on the DUI and tactical squads, and praised for his undercover jobs and work as a drug officer. He was even chosen to secure the safety of Israel's chief rabbi and foreign minister during their visit to Seattle. This, unfortunately, did not outweigh the write-ups he was getting for things like beating up a young man in a parking garage, for which the Seattle PD had to pay $3,000 in a settlement, and the death of a suspect named Roger Lee Stanley who, after he tried to stab at Gary, was shot four times with his revolver. The shooting was ultimately deemed justified, but it led to the decline of Gary's health, career, and his marriage. After an incident in 1979 where he brutally and uncontrollably beat a PCP user who was after his gun, Gary was officially removed from active duty, referred to a psychologist, and had a worried friend take away all of his firearms. Noticing his increasing violence, friends cautioned him to leave the force before he was either fired or he hurt someone. He left in early 1980 and retired from the Army Reserves on disability. The transition did not go well. For the first time in his life, Gary Kruger was without a uniform, without a chain of command, without a schedule, and unfortunately, without a job and without a wife. All of this before he even hit the age of 40. In an attempt yet again to get things back on track, Gary started to work in real estate, but by 1982 was unemployed yet again and filed for bankruptcy. His answer to all of his problems? Bank robbery, earning himself over the years a number of convictions and time in and out of jail. With all of this laid out in front of them, the police working the Lake Washington invasion were pretty certain they had the right criminal partnership. The only problem was the men were nowhere to be found. Less than six months later, the police got one answer to their long list of questions. Floating in Lake Washington that September, police found a body that they were able to identify as Gary Kruger. Not only that, but near where his body was found, at the bottom of the lake, was a sunken nine-foot aluminum skiff that had been stolen from the McAllister's neighbors the night of the invasion. Inside was a duffel bag, plastic handcuffs, duct tape, and extra ammo. The perfect robbery kit. Now, while police were reasonably certain that these were the men responsible for the McAllister invasion, they did find it puzzling that two men in their 60s chose this home to rob. One that was on a populated road, had security, and a family that was still inside. Even more puzzling was the fact that, when they entered Gary's DNA into the system, a hit came up for the 2001 murder of Mike Emmert meaning Gary was the mysterious Stephen police had been looking for for years. A shady cop turned bank robber turned, according to police, a hired hitman who was responsible for at least two other murders. 
In February of 1981, just after Gary left the force, a former Seattle police officer named Terry Dolan was shot multiple times at his Everett gas station in what, on the surface, looked like a robbery, but police always thought there was something more to it. Then there was Jim Barry, a man who was found stabbed to death in his office in 1984. Jim, like Mike and Gary, worked in real estate. Jim was also set to meet with a mysterious client on the day of his murder. His office was ransacked, some items were stolen, but like the others, police weren't totally convinced robbery was the only motive, that it was all likely a cover-up for a homicide. Jim, at the time, worked for Rainier Bank, and around the same time of his murder, Gary Kruger was in contact with that bank in regards to some outstanding loans that he needed to pay. Some of that contact was directly with Jim's office. Police investigating the case had long held suspicion that the killer in Jim Barry's case did not act alone. And now that police have connected Gary Kruger with John Allen Bradshaw, they are almost certain that the cases are all connected. Though they remain unsure if John and Gary were working together, if John, given his money laundering schemes, hired Gary as a hitman, or if the pair were both hired by some bigger entity. Another case, the October 1985 murder of Seattle Hotel and Restaurant Employee Union President Mario Vaccarino, who was found beaten and drowned in his home, has also been connected to Gary Kruger. But with Gary Kruger found at the bottom of Lake Washington, the true details of his case, along with the others, will remain officially a mystery. Police believe that as time passes, more and more cases will be connected to Gary Kruger. John Bradshaw, whose body was not with Gary's the day of its discovery, remains in the wind. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on January 5th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.